verses to catch us up on uh, what's been happening in terms of uh, the book of Jeremiah. We are in Jeremiah chapter 31. We're going to be reading 31 uh, through 37, uh, just to kind of uh, get a flavor of the, the theme that we've been going through. We've been talking about this covenant. And, and for the first time in the whole Old Testament, we see uh, this word new before the word covenant. In fact, in the only time in the whole Old Testament, the book of Jeremiah, it talks about this uh, new uh, covenant, a foreshadowing of what would happen uh, when Jesus comes. Please listen to this. It says in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them out by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds. And write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, I will remember no more. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and it waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says the Lord. And so, Father, tonight as we come before you, maybe... For the first time reading these verses and just seeing the expanse of your love for your people. That even before time began itself, the, the ordinances of heaven, the order of the day and the night, the immensity of just the, the unexplored places of the earth itself that we have just even just barely scratched the surface of with all of our uh, amazing technology. Yet all of that, it pales in significance to the way that you love uh, your people. And so, Lord, as we, we even sang uh, tonight in the, the silence of the waiting, just knowing that we need to listen to you. As the people of Israel some 2,500 years ago when we when we were reading this, that they too um, were so busy in their lives. So please forgive us when we get too busy for you, when we have all the noise of the world all around us. Help us to take that time, whether individually or, or corporately, to be able to just come before you and, and listen to you because you have so much better things to say than us. And Lord, I, I thank you for your word. I ask that you would um, knead it into our hearts tonight. And yes, there's going to be some hard things that we have to see. There's going to be some hard um, examinations of our own life, Lord. Help us to be sensitive to the leading of your Holy Spirit as we dive into your word, as we delve into the depths of, of your scriptures, Lord. I, I thank you so much for these, my friends and my family, those that are here today, those that are online. I ask that you would just bless them uh, for being here tonight. We love you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
and amen. I, I, I uh, remind you from just last week uh, that this new covenant that is uh, described here in the book of Jeremiah is one of the most um, alarming things that Jeremiah could ever say to the religiosity of the day. Because what is he saying? The covenant that God made with, you know, Adam. The covenant that God made with Noah. The covenant that God made with Moses. The covenant that God made with Abraham and David. There's going to be coming a new covenant that even supersedes all these previous covenants. Now, Many times we take that for granted because we, we know, you know, the New Testament, the New Covenant, the, the same exact word that we were learning last week that is used for this word covenant. We also use for our division of the Bible, Matthew to Revelation, the New Testament, which can also be translated as New Covenant. The same thing with the Old Testament. It can also be translated as Old Covenant. The, the covenant that God had cut with Abraham himself, the covenant that God had made, that beautiful rainbow in the sky with Noah. The, the original meaning of the rainbow, by the way. The, the promise of no rain, that God would not destroy the world. And this had been ingrained in the Israelites, you know, history. This, this is who they were. This is how they identified. We are God's people. He made a covenant with us. We are the chosen people of God. And Jeremiah is coming along now and saying, there's going to be a new covenant. And this new covenant is going to be even greater than all the old covenants of the past. Because God is going to change the hardest of hearts. And it's always going to be for the benefit of those that receive it. And the one who makes the covenant has to pay for it. God himself. With the blood of his only begotten son. It's the very spirit of God that would enter people's lives in order to assure their adherence to the covenant. We see these in this verses as we, we read this amazing, you know, um, if you will, poem that, that just shines as we uh, delve into this. Listen to verse 35. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinance of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. That means the one who is in charge of all the armies of heaven. The, the one who is in charge of all the angelic beings that exist. Uh, of which one of those angelic beings can destroy armies. And yet God is in charge of all the angelic beings, all of the created hosts of heaven, the armies of heaven itself. If those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. The first uh, promise that God makes all the way back in the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verse 2. The ordinance of the day one where God separates the light and the darkness. He creates order out of chaos, the Bible said. And for the first time in time itself, when the, you know, measure of time, the day and the night is created, day number one of creation, God makes a promise. He ordains the night, and he ordains the day. And even if we try to change our clocks, guess what's going to happen? The sun's still going to come up, and the sun's still going to set, right? No matter what our clocks say. And you, I mean, we're experiencing that right now, right? It feels like it is, you know, earlier, right? Why? Why does it feel that way? 
because of the sun, because of the ordinance of the sun, right? Our, our bodies are in tune with the day and the night cycles going all the way back before humankind was even created. This is the promises of God. And what did he say about that ordinance? It is good. There's another thing he compares it to, by the way, and both of these are going to have the same conclusion, and, and we'll see that as we walk through this. The, the next thing he compares this with is, if the heavens above can be measured, the immensity of space itself, not just our galaxy, but the universe with all galaxies included can be measured. Or if the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, if you can explore the very core of the planet that we stand on. And the conclusion again is the same as the previous. I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says the Lord. The immensity of these two uh, fundamental things that God created in the universe and time itself. Time and space. I mean, trying to describe that. And people have tried to do that for years and years and years, whether it's with science fiction or whether it's with books or whether it's with movies. Even then, it can boggle the mind. Humans cannot fully comprehend all of these things that God is describing in two verses. Time itself and space itself. If the sun and the moon stop working, or if I'm somehow able to measure the immensity of space itself, or even to the depths of my own planet, then God will disavow Israel. And guess what? People have been trying to do it for years and years and years and years and years, going all the way back to the Tower of Babel. Where people tried to, you know, reach to the heavens themselves. Or, or, or to change time. Or to go back in time. Or to go forward in time. Or, or to see the farthest reaches of the galaxy. Or to bore into the depths of our earth. Or go down to the bottom of our oceans. And all these things that we see described here uh, truly are unfathomable for us. Yeah, all we, we try all the time. And even though we get close, if you've ever looked at a, a cutaway of the earth, and just to give you a, just a, a clue of this, you know, and, and search, you know, mines on the earth with a cutaway, and just look at the deepest mines in a cutaway of the earth, and they just barely scratch the surface. Or, or, or try to go to the farthest reaches of the galaxy when we can just barely make it out of our own solar system. And to imagine that there's thousands and millions and billions of solar systems that make up our, you know, galaxy. And then there's Galaxies upon galaxies upon galaxies in immensity, and God holds it all in the palm of his hand. And we, we try to comprehend it. And, and so the immensity of what is being described here goes beyond uh, the human brain, God understanding all of this in his infinite uh, wisdom, and now comparing that to his love for Israel. This is how much I love Israel. The immensity of time and space itself. All of creation. Time, the sun and the moon, the day and the night, and space, the immensity of the galaxy or the universe that we live in. 
This is how God is describing his love for his people. And we can try and do that with another person, but we will always fall short. We try to describe our love in the immensity of, of time and space. I'll, I'll move the, you know, the sun and the moon for you, right? It's the rom-coms. It's the love stories. But can anyone ever do that? No. Or, or to, you know, name a star after a person. The, the immensity of time and space itself described in the Bible. There's only one who can truly meet that requirement, and it's God himself. The one who created all of time, all of space. And we see it here, in fact, in the book of Lamentations, chapter 3, verses 21 through 23, it, it condenses this. And again, this was written by Jeremiah also. He wrote both the book of Jeremiah and the book of Lamentations. Look how Jeremiah says it and describes it. And this I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. And in the saddest book in the entire Bible, by the way, the book of Lamentations, in the middle of this, it, literally right in the dead center of the book of Lamentations, Jeremiah is recalling this to his mind, having written this previously, by the way, in Jeremiah chapter 31. Though the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not, they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Every time I see that sunrise, what do I know beyond a shadow of a doubt? It's a new day. God's going to give you new compassions and new loving kindnesses. And he's been doing it for millennia. And every single day is new and unique, by the way. Who can imagine that? Not me. Who makes every single day new and fresh? It's God. It's only in the imagination of God, in the fullness of God, in the faithfulness of God, as we see here, that God truly describes his love for you, unique and special, every single day in a different way. I mean, that should just blow us away. And then to see God doing that throughout his, you know, writings, the book, the Bible itself. And then he makes this promise in verse 38. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. Something that's tangible, by the way. The, the ring, if you will. And we're going to see it as a, as a ring. Uh, this circle that God's going to put around the nation of Israel, that the city shall be built for the Lord from the tower of Hanel to the corner gate. The surveyor's line shall again extend straight forward over the hill of uh, Gareb. Uh, then it shall turn toward Goath and the whole valley of the dead bodies and of the ash and all the fields as far as the brook Kidron to the corner of the horse gate uh, toward the east shall be holy to the Lord. It shall not be plucked up or thrown down anymore uh, forever. And we read this and we have no clue what he is saying because I have no idea what these places are unless you look at a map. Or, you know, as, as you know, people that live in Kern County, we, we try to describe some of the places to a person that's never been here before. I'm going to go out to Lost Hills. I'm going to go up to Tehachapi. I'm going to go over to Arvin, Lake Isabella, Fraser Park, all these places that, that we know. We, we know where they're at. But someone who doesn't live there has no clue, just like these places here. You see, this describes a circle around Jerusalem. It's the covenant of God. It's the promise ring, if you will of God's love for his city. Your city's going to be rebuilt. Now again, they're in the midst of a siege. The walls are about ready to be torn down. The temple is about ready to be destroyed. King Solomon's temple. 
And God is promising that it's going to be rebuilt. Not just the way that it was at the time during the days of Jeremiah and King Zedekiah, but better and bigger. In fact, if you read uh, the second book that comes after Jeremiah, the book of Ezekiel, in chapters 40 to 48, we see this described in great detail. What's called the Millennial Kingdom, where the temple is going to be rebuilt four times bigger than the one that King Solomon built in all of its glory. Where, where the land is going to be fully occupied by the Israelites. Not, not just a portion like it is now, not just a portion like it is today. But fully from the top of Dan all the way down to Egypt, from the, the west where the ocean is, all the way to the east where Jordan is. Fully occupied by the Jews. The promise of God. You can look that up yourself in Ezekiel chapter 40 to 48. Chapter 32, verse 1. The story now changes a little bit, still continuing with the covenant, but now it's going to become personal because Jeremiah is now going to have to put his money where his prophecies are. He's going to have to put his finances where his, you know, mouth is speaking, if you will. He's going to have to make a, a, a gamble, you know, knowing the full prophecies of God on the fact that people are going to be coming back to the land. And he's going to be buying it dirt cheap, by the way. Don't, don't you wish you could, you know, predict certain things, the market, you know, or, or the real estate or whatever it is. You know, I should have bought way back in 2009. It would have been perfect, right? You know, or, or that stock or whatever it is. Th this is what Jeremiah is doing. In chapter 32, it says, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, for when the king of Babylon's armies besieged Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the prison, which was in the king of Judah's house, for Zedekiah, king of Judah, had shut him up, saying, Why do you prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall take it, and Zedekiah, king of Judah, uh, shall not escape from the hand of the Chaldeans, but shall surely be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon, and shall speak with him face to face and see him eye to eye, then he shall lead Zedekiah to Babylon, and there he shall be until I visit him, says the Lord. Though you fight with the Chaldeans, you shall not succeed. And remember, we talked about this last week and the week before. What's going to happen to Zedekiah when he meets king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar himself? Where his own two sons, the last lineage of his family, are going to be killed before his eyes, and Zedekiah's eyes are going to be pulled out. For the rest of his life, his last image is of his children being killed. And Jeremiah, as he's describing this in a prison, by the way, in uh, the palace, says this, verse 6, And Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you, saying, By my field, which is in Anathoth, for the right of redemption is yours to buy it. Now, the hilarity of this, you have to imagine this. It's like someone coming to you with a piece of property in the most worthless part of the world. It's that person who's trying to um, swindle you out of your money. Imagine this. This is what is happening. Jeremiah's uncle comes to him in the middle of a siege, okay? The Babylonian army completely surrounds Jerusalem. And he's offering him this piece of land, this worthless piece of land. Where, where Babylonian boots are literally treading on right at this instant. And he's saying, buy this land from me. Okay? Picture this. 
This is the surety of Jeremiah, by the way, the trust of Jeremiah in God. Then Hanamel, my uncle's son, came to me in the court of the prison, according to the word of the Lord, and said to me, Please buy my field, which is in Anathoth, which is in the country of Benjamin, south of Jerusalem. For the right of inheritance is yours, and the redemption yours. Buy it for yourself. What, what is he trying to do? Remember, there's a famine, there's a drought. He's trying to get money for selling this worthless piece of land so he can buy food. So he can get enough food to eat in the midst of this famine. And all he has is this, you know, title of deed that, you know, is worthless. And what does he do? He offers it to Jeremiah, the next in line, the, the next kin, if you will. And then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. So I bought the field from Hanamel, the son of my uncle, who was in Anathoth, and weighed out to him the money, 17 shekels of silver. Now, a, a shekel is always, you know, the easy way to remember this is, is it's a day's wage. Is that dirt cheap? For 17 days of working, I'm going to sell you a piece of land. Now, this, uh, you know, just in, you know, equivalent terms, you know, in terms of how much an actual 17 shekels weighs, and you can just look this up yourself. It's fairly easy to do. Just type in shekels to ounces. It literally, it's only seven ounces of silver. Less than half a pound of silver. And in today's, you know, ratio of, of dollars to silver, it's only about 200 bucks. So what is he doing? Who's getting the better deal, by the way? The uncle, right? Because even if, even if you could, you know, purchase this land and, and, and you know, it's a great deal, 200 bucks, you know. But can Jeremiah go to that piece of land? Can he live on that piece of land? No. The Babylonian army is treading all over it. And it may seem like this, you know, 200 bucks, you know, this, this allotment of money that he gives, he weighs out to his uncle. And what does his uncle do with that money? Is it of any value in a siege where literally, you know, a, a donkey's head or a very small amount of grain is going for exorbitant amounts of money, just like, you know, gas today, inflation itself, where, where literally everybody's clawing and trying to get anything that worth of anything and he sells this worthless piece of land for two hundred dollars so that they can have enough food to eat something that would be of no value to jeremiah now now we understand the story what what is he saying here that we're going to come back and that land is going to be worth money holding the deed not only the sealed copy but the unsealed copy as well we're going to see this as we walk through here jeremiah asked to put his money where his prophecies are and to show that he believes in the prophecies of god he knows they're coming back that's how much faith he has in this in 70 years by the way jeremiah is going to be dead but in 70 years when they come back the deed is going to be his and you can imagine the price will, you know, multiply. Verse 13, it goes into greater detail. You kind of see the, the, um, what it's like for a, a land transaction. There's going to be a, you know, just like today, you have escrow, you have your, you know, the, the person who stamps your thumb, right? You know, you have to go before a notary public. You have to swear there's a, a title, a deed that is put into storage 
for a certain amount of time. And then, of course, your copy, we see that here. Then I charged Baruch before them, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, both this purchase deed, which is sealed, and this deed, which is open, and put them in an earthen vessel, that they may last many days. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall be possessed again in the land. This worthless piece of dirt that the Babylonians are trampling all on will one day be worth money. Will one day be valuable again. That, that's the surety that Jeremiah has in the promises of God. Do you have surety in the promises of God? That's the question. See, Jeremiah does, and he's willing to put his money where his mouth is. Look at to what happens here in verse 16. Now, when I had delivered the purchase deed to Baruch, the son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord, saying, O Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. You show loving kindness to thousands and repay the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children after them, the great and the mighty God whose name is the Lord of hosts. Again, that title that we saw earlier in chapter 31. What does that say? The one who is in charge of all the armies of heaven keeps the promise. He keeps the deed. He's the one that's going to bring us back. And again, the hilarity of the situation is that the Babylonian army is surrounding Jerusalem. And who has the bigger army? Israel, right? Jeremiah knows this. We serve the God of the armies of all of heaven itself. And I know he's going to bring us back. I know he's going to plant us back in the land again. Look at how he describes it in verse 18. You show loving kindness to thousands and repay the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children. After them, the great and the mighty God. Who is the one that has the power to fulfill all of his promises? God does. The immensity of who God is. Do you know where your promises come from? You are great in counsel and mighty in work. For your eyes are open to all the ways of the sons of men. To give everyone according to his ways. And according to the fruit of his doing. Not only is God mighty. But he's also omniscient as well. That means he knows everything. God knows the past and God knows the future. God knows everything and he has the power to complete it. And so God looking at the, you know, whole of time itself being outside of time knows everything and he will bring us back with his mighty power. Do you see that? Verse 20, you have set signs and wonders in the land of Egypt to this day. And in Israel, among other men, you have made yourself a name as it is this day. You have brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders, with a strong hand and an outstretched arm and with great terror. You have given them this land of which you swore to their fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey. And remember the promise that God has made through Jeremiah that the miracle that he's going to do, bringing them back from Babylon, is going to be greater than the miracle of Egypt itself. And he's describing that miracle, the miracle of the coming out of Egypt. And, and he's going to say, this miracle that God is planning is going to be greater than the miracle that we always talk about. That's repeated more times than any other story in the whole Old Testament. The, the coming out of the people of Israel from the land of Egypt to give them this land. And what is it described as? A land flowing with milk and honey. By the way, they're in a siege. They're in a drought. And they're in a famine. What does it look like? Does it look like there's plenty? No. 
but is God going to bring it about? By the way, I mean, this is totally beyond the comprehension of humanity. How how can God do this? Where he's going to cause a a nation that has literally been decimated, and we're going to see the numbers later on. The, the numbers that have been decimated from Israel being this once mighty nation and now cowering behind walls while a city sieges them out and starves them to death. And Jeremiah is reminding them about the land of milk and honey, by the way. And they come in and they took possession of it, but they have not obeyed your voice or walked in your law. They have done nothing at all that you command them to do. Therefore, you have caused all this calamity to come upon them. Did Israel keep the covenant? No. In fact, they fought against the covenant. They they did everything wrong. And yet God's going to keep his end of the bargain. Wow. Does God love us that much? Oh, yeah. Then he points out the obvious. It's, it, it, you know, I mean, living in this day and age when, when Jeremiah is writing it, I mean, it's truly obvious, okay? But for us, some, you know, 25, 2700 years later, it, it may not be so obvious. So picture what Jeremiah is saying. Look at what Jeremiah is saying. Look, the siege mounds. There's a whole bunch of siege mounds out there. And those would have been, you know, dirt mounds where, you know, the Babylonian army was preparing to, you know, either come around with their catapults or their ballistas or or their tunneling devices to go under or destroy the city of Jerusalem itself. Preventing anyone from coming out, by the way. Look at the siege mounds. They have come to the city to take it. The city has been given into the hand of the Chaldeans who fight against it because of the sword and the famine and the pestilence. What you have spoken has happened there. You see it. Do we see it today? Hopefully in our mind's eye we see a little glimpse of it. The enormity of what is right before Jeremiah's eyes having to tell the people God loves you immensely and he's going to bring you back despite all that you see around you. Despite the enormity of your problems, God with his mighty army is going to overcome. Wow. We may not be surrounded by a Babylonian army. But do our problems sometimes feel like that? And is God still the Lord of hosts today? Does God still keep his promises? Thank God that he does. By by the way, you know, the, the times may change, the situations may change, but God's word never changes. And it's just as fresh today is when it was written. Just substitute your problems. Just substitute your situation for the siege mounts. See God work. Verse 26. Oh, excuse me. I skipped a verse here. Verse 25. Very important verse, by the way. You have said to me, O Lord God, buy the field for money and take witnesses, yet the city has been given into the hand of the Chaldeans. It's worthless. Even though if I bought it for dirt cheap, 200 bucks, it's still worthless, right? How will I ever, you know, own it or build it or, you know, improve on it with Babylonian boots on the ground? It's impossible. Will God keep his promise? And by the way, I mean, any, you don't have to wait for Wednesdays to read the book of Jeremiah. Did you know that? You could actually read ahead. You know that. You know, just don't do it now. You know, wait, wait until after, okay? But, but you know you can read ahead, right? You, you can read ahead to the story and see what God does because it's absolutely amazing. Verse 26, and the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? 
again, with the immensity of the problem right outside the walls, while he's in prison, too, by the way. He's in a court prison while the city of Jerusalem is being held prisoner by siege works outside of it. I mean, just the, just the absurdity of the problem. Everybody is being surrounded. Jeremiah is right in the middle, by the way. And, and we'll see. I mean, it gets worse for Jeremiah, too, by the way. This is the Hilton compared to where he's going to be in a little bit. Verse 28, therefore thus says the Lord, behold, I will give this city into the hand of the Chaldeans and the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall take it. And the Chaldeans who fight against this city shall come, set fire to the city and burn it with the houses of those on whose roofs they have offered incense to Baal and poured out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger because the children of Israel and the children of Judah have done only evil before me from their youth. For the children of Israel have provoked me only to anger with the works of their hands, says the Lord. So you kind of get a glimpse into why the city of Jerusalem is about ready to be destroyed. Why the temple is about ready to be destroyed. God's going to clean it all. But those roofs where you offered your children to foreign gods, I'm going to rip them all apart. That, that temple where you have idols to the sun god and the moon god, the fertility gods and the gods of all the other surrounding nations, I'm going to tear that temple down. When you come back, you're going to start fresh. You're going to want to worship me. You're, you're going to want to love me. You're going to want to have a relationship with me. Verse uh, 31, for this city has been a, re a provocation of, of my anger and my fury from the day that they built it, even to this day. So I remove it from my face because of all the evil of the children of Israel and the children of Judah, which they have done to provoke me to anger. They, their kings, their princes, their priests, their prophets, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. He's labeling everybody, by the way. And they have turned to me the back and not the face, though I taught them rising up early and teaching them, yet they have not listened to receive instruction, but they set their abominations in the house, the temple, which they, uh, excuse me, which they called by my name to defile it, the temple itself putting these abominations into the temple. And they built the high places of Baal, which are in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to cause their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire to Molech, which I did not command them, nor did it come into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. Do you see that here? The, uh, you know, immensity of the sin of Israel, something that, you know, and as we described earlier, that the omniscience of God being all-knowing, all-wise, and yet never even conceiving of anything close to sin. How, you know, we ourselves you know, from a very early age, just by being humans can lie like that or do selfish things. Where God in all of his infinite majesty, wisdom, cannot even begin to comprehend anything close to sin. It is out of the character of God. He could never even begin to think of sin itself. Or as we describe here, the abominations of killing their children, sacrificing them to uh, Molech, as it says here. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the city of which you say, it shall be delivered in the hand of the king of Babylon by the sword, by famine, by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them out of all countries. Where I've driven them in my anger and my fury and my great wrath, I will bring them back to this place. And I will cause them to do what? To dwell safely. Despite the fact 
that they've done these horrific things, what is God going to do? He's going to keep his promise. And he's going to bring them back. He's going to bring them back to the promised land. He describes it this way in verse 38. They shall be my people and I will be their God. Then I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for the good of them and their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them. That's, we would never do that to any person. You you have to imagine this, this person that has betrayed you, hit you, kicked you, lied to your face, broken every single promise. God is going to bring them back to the land and then give them a new covenant. A a new promise. Read the book of Hosea, by the way, as you'll... You know, this this is it in a nutshell. And buy them back with the blood of his son. Who would ever do that? Oh, we'll we'll forgive once or twice. You know, the old saying, you, you've heard it before. Fool me once, shame on me. Right? No. Shame on you. Fool me twice. Shame on me, right? Because I I fell into the trap again, right? I was stupid enough to fall into the trap. God in his omniscience, knowing that they're going to fail, knowing that they're going to completely ignore and disavow and disobey the promises of God, is still going to come back to him, them in his everlasting love and make a new promise to them, a new covenant, a new testament to them. And us, by the way, too. Because we can talk about Israel all we want and ignore our own. We're just like them, by the way. We're just like them. Verse 40, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them, and I will not turn away from doing them good. But I will put fear in their hearts that they will not depart from me. Yes, I will rejoice over them and do them good. I will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. And God does it after 70 years. He's going to bring them back to the land. And they're going to be in the land until 80, 70 in 8070, they're going to be taken out of the land again. The Romans are going to come in, destroy the temple again. And then in 1948, God's going to bring them back to the land again. Something that would have been unfathomable some 100 years ago, like what Pastor was talking about in the you know, commentaries of people from the early 1900s. Verse 42, for thus says the Lord, just I have brought out all this great calamity on this people, so I will bring on them all the good that I have promised them. The fields will be bought in this land of which you say it is desolate without man or beast. It has been given into the hand of the Chaldeans. That land that you just bought is going to be valuable again. I guarantee it. I promise it. Don't you wish you knew the market? Don't you wish you knew when to buy low, sell high? Jeremiah, through the prophecies of God, he knows this. Men will buy fields for money, sign deeds, and seal them. By the way, this is the first of them. And take witnesses into the hand of Benjamin in the places around Jerusalem. By the way, Benjamin is exactly where he had bought that piece of land, Anathoth itself. In the places around Jerusalem, in the cities of Judah, in the cities of the mountains, in the cities of the lowland, in the cities of the south. All those places where Babylonian boots have tread. For I will cause their captives to return, says the Lord. Jeremiah is going to make a killing from the prophet. He believes in God despite the fact that he will not see the prophet himself, though. This is faith. This is faith. This is literally the definition of faith. And if you skip ahead to the New Testament, to Hebrews chapter 11, the the chapter on faith, 
listen to this. It's not Jeremiah alone that's going to have faith in the prophecies of God that he will never see come to pass, by the way. He's not going to see the land restored. He's not going to see the value of the property go up. He's not even going to see the new covenant cut in the blood of Jesus Christ. But he knows it's going to happen. Listen to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 39. And by the way, I mean, you read all the previous people, Abraham and Noah and Joseph and, and all the guys from the judges and, and the people that are listed in this amazing book. At the very end of the chapter, the faith chapter, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 39, and all these having obtained a good testimony through faith did not receive the promise. And yet they believed in it. They had faith in it. People say today, I can't see God. I can't see faith, right? But do you believe in it? Do you believe in the one who is the God of the armies of heaven itself, the Lord of hosts, who is omniscient and omnipresent and omnipotent as well? Can you fulfill all of his promises despite the fact that you may not even see them? What does that take? Faith, right? Do I believe God is coming back? Do I believe in a heaven? Do I believe that I will see heaven? Yes. Do I know God is going to return? Yes. Will I be alive to see it? It takes faith, right? Jeremiah is showing us faith. Chapter 33, verse 1, we'll, we'll just start this. I, I just, I, I want to read, you know, I'm going to read the first part here just to kind of set the story. We got five minutes. And, and then I want to make sure that we get to at least verse 16 here and, and just to set the stage for two weeks from now. You get to yell at the kids, by the way, okay? Remember, you're going to cheer them on. You know, they're going to be racing right down here, okay? Um, and I get a, a short break. Chapter 31, verse 1, moreover, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah a second time while he was still shut up in the court of the prison, saying, he's still in prison, okay? Still in the prison, surrounded by the palace guards, surrounded by the walls of Jerusalem, surrounded by Babylon itself. Thus says the Lord who made it, the Lord who formed it to establish it, the Lord is his name. Call to me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. Show, showing his omnipotence, Showing his omniscience, showing his omnipresence, okay? God is everywhere, knows all things, all powerful. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the houses of this city and the houses of the kings of Judah, which have been pulled down to fortify against the siege mounds and the sword. Again, you have to use your imagination here. How are they protecting the city? With destroyed towers. That's how they're protecting. It's literally just you know, piles of stone all around the city of Jerusalem. They've reinforced the city walls with dirt piles that have been taken from towers that were torn down, okay? I mean, just, you know, the, the haphazardness of this siege. Verse 5, they come and fight with the Chaldeans, but only to fill their place with the dead bodies of man whom I will slay in my anger and my fury. All of those whose wickedness I've hidden my face from this city. Behold, I will bring it health and healing. I will heal them and reveal to them the abundance of peace and truth. I will cause the captives of Judah and the captive of Israel to return. And I will rebuild this place as it at the first. This horrifically destroyed city is going to be rebuilt one day. The, the, the siege bounds and the big huge piles of rubble are all going to be made back into a living, breathing city again. And you have to go to Ezra and Nehemiah uh, to read about this. He's going to bring health. He's going to bring prosperity. He's going to be bringing healing. 
I will cleanse them from all their iniquity by which they have sinned against me. I will pardon all their iniquities by which they have sinned and by which they have transgressed against me. Then it shall be to me a name of joy, a praise and an honor before all the nations of the earth who shall hear all the good that I do to them. They shall fear and tremble for all the goodness and all the prosperity that I provide for it. Why is God rebuilding the land? Why is God going to bring them back? Why is God going to rebuild the city? It's not for Israel. Who gets the glory? God. Why? Because the people of Israel could never do this in their own power. Just like us, by the way. Just like forgiveness. Just like atonement. Just like the promises of God. Something that I cannot do in my own strength. God has done. Who gets the glory? In the weakness of us. In the frailty of us. In the iniquity of who we are. Verses 10 through 16. Thus says the Lord again. There shall be heard in this street of which you say it is desolate. Without man and without beast. And the cities of Judah and the cities of Jerusalem that are desolate. Without man and without inhabitant. Without beast. The voice of the joy, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, the voice of those who will say, praise the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good. His mercies endure forever. And of those who will bring sacrifices of praise. By the way, we got to experience just a glimpse of that tonight. Every, every time we worship. The sacrifices of praise. Think of that verse. It blows me away. For I will cause the captives of the land to return as at the first, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in this place, which is desolate without man and without beast, in all its cities, there shall again be a dwelling of shepherds causing their flocks to lie down. In the cities of the mountains and the cities of the lowlands and the cities of the south and the land of Benjamin, the place where he just bought land. In the places around Jerusalem, in the cities of Judah, and the flocks shall again pass under the hands of him who counts them, says the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will perform that good thing which I promised to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness. He shall execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In those days, Judah will be saved. And Jerusalem shall dwell safely. And this is the name by which she shall be called. Yahweh Sadiqna. The Lord our righteousness. And by the way, just like when we read it in chapter 23. This is the only time we see this title of God in the whole Bible. Only two places in Jeremiah, and you were here to listen to it. And if you come in two weeks, you'll get to hear it again too, by the way. The Lord, our righteousness, the place on the earth that was once desolate is now going to be the center of the righteousness of God. Think about that. Meditate upon it. As you leave tonight. And so, Father, I thank you so much for the privilege that we have to read your word. It truly is amazing. Your word is truly alive and powerful. And even though this was written uh, millennia ago, though this was written thousands of years ago, we know that your promises are just as true today. Lord, we do have faith in you knowing that our relationship with you is not dependent upon us, but 100% upon you. And thank God for that, because we would lose it every single time. Lord, thank you for holding the surety of our salvation, the, the deed, if you will, the promise. And you hold it securely. Lord, we thank you for that. Lord, I thank you for your word. The hope, as we see in the book of Jeremiah, despite what it may look around us, whether it's the emotional siege mounds or the financial siege mounds or, 
or the, all the problems that we may be facing, the trials and the tribulations that seem to surround us and are insurmountable, that you will bring us back because you are faithful, that your promises are always new every single morning. Your loving kindnesses give us hope every single day. And your compassions will never fail. Because you are a great and faithful God. And so, Lord, we claim that tonight. We thank you for it. Thank you for reminding us of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And amen. God bless you. Thank you for being here tonight.